This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Sally Magnuson. Warm welcome to this Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust event uh, here at the Hi, Edinburgh Dan. International Book Festival with Caroline Credo Perez and friend. And friend. Uh, <laughs> now, like, just she got requested, so you know I couldn't disappoint whoever it was in the audience that tweeted earlier. <laughs> So I'd, I ought to let you know that we are um, recording this event today for a future broadcast on BBC Radio Scotland. In fact, I think it's on next Sunday on the Sunday morning with Sally Magnuson programme at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. So um, do switch on to that if you're interested in hearing this. Again, I'm going to do another more formal introduction to Caroline in just a second or two. So... Um, uh, I'll go all formal for that, but uh, this is just to tell you this is what we're doing and could you switch off all your, your phones, any noisy mobile devices, do that now please. And uh, we shall begin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this Edinburgh International Book Festival event in the capitals at Charlotte Square Gardens, the rain thundering down on the marquee uh, overhead. I'm delighted to be introducing to you the author of a truly eye-opening book. I have to say there are not all that many books that from literally the first page to the last have you thinking, wow, I didn't know that, or yep, that's all too familiar, but I never thought about why, or the wider ramifications. Oh, this is such a book. Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, explores the effect of what's described as the gender data gap. In a nutshell, it's the story of what happens when we forget to account for half of humanity. Its author, Caroline Criado Perez, hit the headlines with her campaign to make the Bank of England have female representation on its banknotes. She succeeded, and Jane Austen reigns there today. She... <laughs> She also campaigned for Parliament Square to have the statue of a woman, and as part of the women's suffrage celebrations last year, up went a statue of Millicent Fawcett. So there is lots to ask her about today. You've really welcomed her, but welcome her again, Caroline Credo Perez. <laughs> And for our radio listeners, I ought to explain that on her lap is a very, very small dog <laughs> by name Poppy with, uh, with large pointy ears um, <laughs> sitting delightfully, which Caroline explains to me that she brings along by public request. So uh, here she is today. Caroline, first, what is the gender data gap? So the gender data gap is essentially about the fact that there is information, the vast majority of information, in fact, that we have in the world is based on male bodies and typical male lifestyle patterns. 
So, and that is from economics through to uh, medicine, uh, through to the workplace, through to travel infrastructure, pretty much anything you can think of that we've designed, we have designed it based on data collected on men. Its impact ranges from the relatively trivial to the actually very serious, doesn't it? From toilet queues at the ladies, office temperatures set too low. Now, look, toilet queues are very, very serious. <laughs> <laughs> and very, very annoying. Yes, so I want you are. to explain the data on these. Um, but also, you know, at the truly serious end, you have, for instance, the design of crash dummies. Mm -hmm. so, so just give us a, you know, unpack these examples for us to start with, if you would. So... I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, there's just so many examples. And as you say, it ranges from, you know, the seemingly more trivial through to the incredibly serious and potentially fatal. So the car crash test dummies that you mentioned. Um, historically, the car crash test dummy that has always been used for decades has been based on a 50th percentile male. So it's an average man crash test dummy that has been used to test cars for safety for all of us. Which, of course, when you sit down and think about it, is obviously ridiculous. The average man does not reflect the average human being, but that is what we think. When we think of the average human being, nine times out of ten, we're thinking of a man, and that is how you end up with a situation where the car crash test dummy uh, is represented by an average man. And that means that cars have been designed in all sorts of ways that don't accommodate women's bodies. So, for example, uh, women's breast tissue. No test has ever really been done for a seatbelt and how it interacts with breast tissue, with the result that women don't wear seatbelts properly. I, for radio listeners, I'm doing scare quotes there. Obviously, we do wear them properly. It's the seatbelts haven't been designed for our boobs, but, you know, who can accommodate boobs? They're just this crazy, wacky thing that no one really has. Um, <laughs> Another issue is that as a result of the car crash test dummy being much taller and heavier than the average woman, um, seats are not designed that, to fit an average woman properly. So they are too firm, which means that women get thrown much further forward if they're in a, in a car crash. And, also, and that's particularly dangerous because as well as being too firm, um, they are, in order to be safe, have to be too far back. So the standard seating position is much further back than the average woman will sit when she drives. Women tend to sit much further forward in order to reach the pedals, which you know, is quite an important part of being able to drive. <laughs> Some might call it crucial. Um, only this, crazy I, radical I, I, feminists, I, though. I suppose, though, um, you know, there are non-standard size men. Um, it isn't finding any vaguely average size, which you've perhaps got to do, mm -hmm. isn't that always going to leave a lot of people excluded and disadvantaged? Well, the issue is that we haven't found a vaguely average-sized person. We've found an average-sized man. And that's the ultimate issue, is that women are treated as outliers. They're treated as if they're atypical. And the result in the car crashes, for example, is that women are 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash than a man, and 47% more likely to be seriously injured. And that includes you know, life-changing injuries. We're not talking bumps and scratches on the head here. Um, and and really, you know, that is at the heart of everything that I talk about in the book, is that we think that we are talking about average human beings, and we think that we are speaking gender neutrally, but actually we are talking about average men. A really good example of this um, happened just after the book came out. NASA very kindly did some amazing promo for me, where they were about to send the first, do the first all-female spacewalk. And they couldn't do it because they didn't have enough suits 
that fit women. Um, which you think they would, might have you know, figured out before they announced they were going to do an all-female spacewalk, but never mind. Um, and, and when you looked into what the issue was, they had two, small, uh, two medium, two large, and two extra large, but only both the large were fully functional. The extra large and the medium were seen as spare. Now, the extra large is for an outlier male, but medium is for an average woman, but it was seen as a spare, an outlier, and the male size was seen as the average size. And so, yes, of course, you know, talking about averages, outliers are going to find it more difficult. But the, the, the heart of the book is that women are treated as if they are outliers when we are not outliers. We are half the world. Just tell us quickly about the toilets and the, and the office temperatures. See, I, I, the office temperatures, I'm always cold in offices, and I never realized. <laughs> yeah, so um, basically that's because the standard to the, the equation to determine the, the level at which office temperatures should be set um, was devised in the 1960s um, using the uh, metabolic resting rate of a 40-year-old man. And then it turns out, actually, that women's metabolic rates are lower than that. And so the average office is five degrees too cold for most women. Um, you know, and, and, and this is another thing where you sort of end up having these arguments, you know, where I've had men say to me, what, you know, should I, should I just be really hot then? And no one's saying that you men should have to be uncomfortable. Nobody wants that. Um, but the point is, we've designed it for the average man to be comfortable and just not included the average woman as well. And what we should be doing, if we're thinking about averages, is having an average of humanity. Um, although, obviously, with cars, you know, you can do something really clever, like, for example, having adjustable pedals. Who could have thought of that? Um, the, the toilets... Um, is a really interesting example of how if you treat everyone the same, that doesn't necessarily result in equality. Someone gave me a really good example of how you might explain this so that people understand, um, which is, you know, if you were thinking about installing a ramp for a wheelchair user, you wouldn't say, oh, we can't install the ramp because, you know, not everyone gets to, has to use the ramp and everyone should just be able to use steps you would recognize that that was objectively absurd. You know, obviously, we need to provide different things for different needs in order that people can have equal access. Well, it's the same thing with toilets. So traditionally, the way we've thought about toilets is if we provide equal floor space for men and women, that would be fair. And it certainly does seem fair on the surface. Why wouldn't that be fair? But then you think about all the reasons that women may need to go to the toilet more frequently or may need to take more time. So, for example, women who are pregnant need to go to the toilet much more often. Women who have urinary tract infections, women are eight times more likely to have urinary tract infections. And I bet you pretty much every woman in the audience has had one. And you know you need to be chained to the toilet when you're having one of those. Um, women are much more likely to be accompanied by uh, young children or by older people, um, which means that they'll take more time you know, a certain proportion of the female population will be on its period at any one time, which means, again, they will take longer. So when you start adding that all up, you start to realize, actually, women need more provision. But I'm not even finished yet, because on top of that, <laughs> on top of that, in the male toilets, they've got urinals. And urinals mean that you can have a lot more men peeing in much less floor space. So ultimately, what you have is a situation where women need more provision, but actually have less provision, simply because you've given them the same 
floor space. Now, before the men in the audience start sort of twitching and looking at their feet, I, you, you know, you do make clear in the book that none of this is is malicious or, yeah. or, or even deliberate. It's, it's, it's simply been a way of, of thinking or, or not thinking, indeed, about, about an awful lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely not conspiracy. You know, I don't think for one second that car manufacturers want women to die in car crashes um, or that architects want women to spend hours queuing. Although, I don't know, maybe they do. Maybe it's a grand conspiracy to, you know, keep us out of the public space. No, it's definitely not. Um, so it, it is just the product of a way of thinking that we all do. You know, I do it, you do it, everyone does it, that we think of a man when we think of a human being. Um, I mean, that was how I first got into feminism, was realizing that that was something I did. I hadn't been a feminist at all growing up. Um, I thought feminism was embarrassing, really. Um, and I read this book that was talking about generic uh, generic pronouns, man to mean humankind, he to mean he or she. And I think like a lot of people, I'd heard this argument before that feminists make, that this is a terrible thing to do. And I thought uh, that it was ridiculous. You know, everyone knows it means he or she, haven't got feminists anything, you know, better to worry about. And, but then the author of the book, Debbie Cameron, pointed out that studies show that when women hear these words, they picture a man. And that just blew my mind because I realized that I was picturing a man. And also, I just thought, I'm 26. How have I never noticed up till this point that every time I don't know the gender of a person, I'm picturing a man? And, you know, that's the opposite sex to me. You'd think it's something that I would notice, and yet I didn't. On the other hand, if you use she, everybody would picture a woman, and that doesn't help us either because you, it's a pronoun, you know, you need that well you that can say he or both. she but actually i would yeah. argue that we should say she and i well, do say would. she and the reason i do that is because it's just a corrective you know it's a corrective to the way we normally yes see but the world. it's a corrective that would end up thinking the same kind of way the opposite way in which you've said is wrong is do you know what i mean i mean i'm understanding the corrective the corrective point you're making, but I, I, I still don't... I mean, language is so difficult mm -hmm. and, and, and so subtle um, that if, if you put she in all the places that we're kind of used to using he, what that does in the imagination is, is complicated, is well, it not? Well, really what it does... I mean, actually, they already do it, for example, in economics papers, and there's a the very good reason for this. They do it because it makes people sit up and take notice. Because you don't notice when you read he. When you read she, you sort of think, oh, wait, what? It's a woman? Because it's, you know, so unusual. Um, the issue that we have is not just that we default to male, it's that we don't notice that we're doing it. So you mentioned that one of the campaigns that I ran was to get uh, the first female statue in Parliament Square. And one of the main things that people said to me was, how did I never notice that this square was full of statues of men? Um, and these were, you know, feminists who were saying this. And I hadn't noticed either, actually. I'd been and in that square many, many times before, and I hadn't noticed. And that is the point. And you can be sure that if it was a, st a square full of statues of women, we would notice. Yeah. And this is what this book is so wonderful at doing. It just makes you, on every page, notice notice things and I'd love to get a flavour of it now. Uh, the, the bit I'd like you to read about is, the, is how the Bank of England ended up with five white men on their banknotes. Before they caved, the Bank of England's case for their all-male lineup also rested on the meritocracy argument. 
Historical figures were, they said, chosen using an objective selection criteria. To join the gilded list of key figures from our past, a person must fulfill the following. Have broad name recognition, have good artwork, not be controversial, and have made a lasting contribution which is universally recognized and has enduring benefits. Reading these subjective designations of worth, I realized how the bank had ended up with five white men on its banknotes. The historical gender data gap means that women are just far less likely to be able to fulfill any of these objective criteria. In 1839, the composer Clara Schumann wrote in her diary, I once thought that I possessed creative talent, but I've given up this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. Not one has been able to do it, and why should I expect to? The tragedy is Schumann was wrong. Women before her had been able to do it, and they included some of the most successful, prolific, and influential composers of the 17th and 18th centuries. It's just that they didn't have broad name recognition because a woman barely has to die before she is forgotten or before we consign her work to the gender data gap by attributing it to a man. Felix Mendelssohn published six of his sister Fanny Hensel's pieces under his own name. And in 2010, another manuscript previously thought to be his was proven to be Hensel's. For years, classical scholars argued that the Roman poet Sulpicia couldn't possibly have written the verses signed with her name. They were too good, not to mention too smutty. Judith Leister, one of the first Dutch women to be admitted to an artist's guild, was renowned in her time, but after her death in 1660, she was erased, her work attributed to her husband. In 2017, new works by 19th century artist Caroline Louisa Daly were discovered. They had been previously attributed to men, only one of whom, sorry, one of whom was not even an artist. <laughs> At the turn of the 20th century, award-winning British engineer, physicist, and inventor, Hertha Ayrton remarked that while errors overall are notoriously hard to kill, an error that ascribes to a man what was actually the work of a woman has more lives than a cat. She was right. Textbooks still routinely name Thomas Hunt Morgan as the person who discovered that sex was determined by chromosomes rather than environment, despite the fact that it was Nettie Stevens' experiments on mealworms that established this, and despite the existence of correspondence between them, where Morgan writes to ask Stevens for details of her experiment. Cecilia Payne Kapochskin discovery that the sun is predominantly composed of hydrogen is often credited to her male supervisor. Perhaps the most famous example of this kind of injustice is Rosalind Franklin, whose work she had concluded via her X-ray experiments and unit cell measurements that DNA consists of two chains and a phosphate backbone led to James Watson and Francis Crick, now Nobel Prize winning household names, to discover DNA. None of this means that the Bank of England deliberately set out to exclude women. It just means that what may seem objective can actually be highly male biased. In this case, the historically widespread practice of attributing women's work to men made it much harder for a woman to fulfill the bank's requirements. The fact is that worth is a matter of opinion, and opinion is informed by culture. And if that culture is as male-biased as ours is, it can't help but be biased against women by default. Well...
That campaign was successful, as we were saying earlier, Jane Austen now adorns a, a, a banknote. But your involvement in that campaign, Caroline, it, it uh, attracted threats of rape, mutilation, death. I mean, what impact did that have on you? Did you expect it? You can't have expected that kind of assault. No, I absolutely didn't expect it. Um, and I was terrified. Um, it was absolutely relentless. I had never experienced anything like that before. Um, and, you know, I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know where they were. I didn't know what they were capable of. Um, and, you know, it only took one of the hundreds, thousands of people who were telling me they were going to rape, mutilate and kill me to actually mean it. And, you know, people were trying to find my address. Um, they were posting various addresses that they had found which had been sort of old addresses or connected to me in some way. Um, so I felt, you know, I felt hunted. It was terrifying. What was the main thing, if there, if there was any rationality behind this at all, what was the main thing people were objecting to, men were objecting to? Oh, but was it only men? Perhaps not. Well, it's hard to know because it's a, a lot of people online are anonymous or, you know, don't necessarily reveal their gender. But um, it was mainly men. Um, and... They weren't really voicing a sort of coherent analysis of why they were angry. Um, the number one sort of uh, theme that came out of all the threats that I got sent was basically shut up. Um, I don't think I can repeat, because this is for radio now, the kinds of things that were said, but there was a lot of shut your bleep mouth. You know, I'm going to shove my bleep down your mouth. Um, a lot sort of focused on my mouth and my speech. So it was basically that. It was just the fact that I had the temerity as a woman to be speaking. And I guess for people to be listening to me. Um, and, you know, we can talk a bit if you want about my analysis of why, why that is. No, um, give us a quick analysis if you would. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clearly ridiculous. You know, that it, it doesn't make sense. It's not a logical response to the campaign that I ran, which was a fairly innocuous campaign on the face of it, you know, it's a line drawing. Um, I'm asking for a line drawing of a woman. Why is that so threatening? But it's about what that line drawing represents, which of course was the reason that I ran the campaigns, that it's not just about a line drawing. It's about women's rights to be represented in the public space. And historically, and as I go into in the book, you know, still now, the way we represent the world is hugely male-dominated. Um, the films that we produce, the books that we publish, uh, the school textbooks and curriculums, you know, all of this is so heavily focused on, on men. You know, even language textbooks mainly have men in their example sentences. Um, and we just don't really realize that we're doing it. But nevertheless, of course, this is shaping people's worldview. This is shaping men's worldview and women's worldview. And so if you are a man growing up... Um, being told that the public sphere is yours to inherit. And then a woman comes along and is saying, hang on a minute, there's this other part of humanity that should be represented. The men who were sending me these threats, the only way I think you can explain it is that they felt deeply threatened. There was some kind of existential threat to them as men. What does it mean to be a man if we've always defined masculinity, successful masculinity, as being dominant, as occupying leadership roles, as you know, leading women, you know, being dominant over women, um, what does it mean if suddenly women are doing that? 
You know, and I, I think that a lot of this is down to the fact that we haven't redefined what it means to be a man. We've not provided a new model of what a successful man looks like. And that is a huge bit of work that still needs to be done. And you've also um, talked in, in interviews of how you've had to come to terms yourself with, with um, a different way of being a woman that doesn't um, depend for her self-esteem on being approved of by men or being respected by men. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that, your, your thoughts on that. Um, well, I mean, I think that the world we live in, I think most women just instinctively know that male approval is a really important thing to have. Um, I remember realizing it when I was about 11. Um, that was when I sort of consciously realized it. I don't know if I was aware of it before then, but I remember very clearly being at school and realizing that all the boys were talking and I was talking, but all the other girls were being quiet. And most importantly, that the boys didn't like that I was a talkative girl. Um, and knowing that that meant I should shut up. And I just didn't even question it. I just knew that that's the way things should be. You know, it's just so clearly ingrained in our society that that's the way things are. Um, and you see it in all sorts of things, the way, you know, and again, this is it's me talking about my, um, my life and how I grew up. You know, you want to be told by a man, oh, you're not like other girls. You're like, more like one of the guys. You know, that's such a compliment um, because you're getting that male approval. And what that means is you aren't a stereotype. You know, you're not like the stereotype of women as bitchy and emotionally incontinent and hysterical and irrational and jealous and all these ridiculous things that obviously women aren't actually but which is such a powerful stereotype um, and and so then to become this woman that says actually no this is bullshit sorry mum <laughs> her mother's in the audience <laughs> um, you know that isn't what women are like and this is something that has been holding women back and in fact the way we've represented the world is something that has been holding women back and I'm not going to set myself against other women anymore in order to please you and allow you to say that I'm an exception you know I'm going to stand together with other women and I don't care about your approval well that's quite difficult to do because it's not like the whole of society stops existing and that male approval stops being important. You know, men are still in the positions of power, um, both, you know, formally and sort of informally, socially. Um, and, you know, I, I think I get better at it, yeah. <laughs> of being a woman that men disapprove of. I mean, um, but it never, it's never easy. And how does your... your professional identity as a, as a sort of feisty feminist campaigner affect your private life? I mean, do you, do you feel a pressure to be that strong public persona all the time? When um, you're, you know, when you're with blokes and in your private life? I'm not sure that I necessarily feel... A pressure. Are you talking about friendships or relationships? I suppose I'm feeling about. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about relationships. Um, you know, I. Yeah, I'm, I'm just digging to see where. <laughs> <laughs> where you you know you're a you know you're a young woman and and you know 
you go out with men and whether what you are, you, you know, what you what you believe, what you campaign for, what you're, you know, what you have to present yourself <laughs> as, um, whether that affects what what uh, men expect of you, mm -hmm. see you as, and, and, and you vice versa. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it's, it's not necessarily always been easy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of... I'm sort of trying to think how to say this. So, I mean, at the moment, I'm actually very happy and in a relationship with a really great guy who it isn't a problem with so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> but definitely, I have felt that that sort of tension of being with a man who, you know, at first seems to really like that you are, you know, engaged and you will argue and you've got your own opinions, but actually, you know, later down the line, isn't so sure that he likes you having these opinions, um, particularly if you happen to know more about a topic than he does. Um, <laughs> I have found that that causes certain problems. Um, a, a past relationship I had um, ended over an argument about travel infrastructure. Um, <laughs> The, the argument prior to that had been about the NHS. I knew more about him on both counts. He didn't like it. <laughs> well, listen, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, get back. let's get back to the book and, and you know, some of the, the um, arguments you're presenting there, some of the, the, the data gaps you're, you're presenting there. Can I just ask, hands up, um, all those who are aware that there are um, different symptoms of heart attack for women and men. Well, that's a lot wow. of people. I think you've done your work very well then, <laughs> Caroline, because um, you were explaining earlier, and, and, and certainly this has been the, the experience of, uh, of, of a lot of people um, that I'm aware of as well, that, that when they go for first aid classes and so on, what, what, what is presented is the male heart attack um, symptoms, yeah, and they are completely different, are they yeah. not, from what women can expect? Yeah, I mean, it was it was very frustrating being in this first aid class because, um, you know, the first aid instructor obviously has the the power in that situation, and I was just seen as this stroppy, annoying woman. And of course, I was wearing this T-shirt as well, which for the radio audience says half of all T-Rexes were girls, which. <laughs> You wouldn't know if you read any children's book. Um, <laughs> but anyway, obviously that marked me out as the troublemaking stroppy feminist. And here I was telling a first aid instructor that he was wrong about heart attack symptoms. Um, and there was just a bit of a standoff. <laughs> anyway, um, so the, the issue there is that women are more likely to die following a heart attack. And women have been more likely to die following a heart attack since 1984. Um, and that is largely because we have developed everything from recognizing symptoms to diagnostic tests around what heart attacks look like and how they progress for men. So certainly, I didn't know about this before... I came, came up with the idea for, for the book. It was actually when I was researching my last book that I came across this, so in 2014, that the heart attack symptoms that I had always been taught, pain in the chest and down the left arm, 
were not gender-neutral heart attack symptoms, that they were actually typical male heart attack symptoms. And women are more likely to experience breathlessness, nausea, fatigue, what feels like indigestion. Um, and these symptoms are called atypical. They are not atypical for women. They are atypical for men, <laughs> but they're actually very typical for women. In fact, um, chest pain is only experienced by, I think, one in eight women. So if anything, male heart attack symptoms are atypical for women. But anyway, these symptoms are called atypical. And the result of that, you know, which is once again positioning half the world as a niche minority, um, means that we don't teach these symptoms in first aid courses or in public health information. And so one of the biggest problems is women don't realize they're having a heart attack. And so they don't go to the doctor. And then, of course, possibly they die. Um, the next problem is, even if they do go to the doctor, doctors are not good at diagnosing women with heart attacks. Women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack than men. Then on top of that, if the doctor does happen to recognize that this woman is having a heart attack and sends her off for a diagnostic test. One of the main tests that is used is looking for blockages. But actually, women's heart attacks don't necessarily present with blockages in the same way. And so you have women who have had this test being sent home with undiagnosed chest pain. And in all these scenarios, I don't need to tell you, the woman can then go on to die. Um, and all of this is because we still, in medicine, use the male body as the default body. And I say still because it is still. It is still going on. In medical research, the vast majority of the time, all research starts off in males. And I say males because it's not just humans. It's also male animals and even male cells. Um, and um, I'm going I'm to stop because I could carry on ranting but you might not want me to. I can tell you all about why they do this and why it's really stupid and why it makes me very angry. <laughs> I will stop you just because there's so, there's so many other, other uh, things that you, you, you talk about in the book that, that are so very interesting. I'm just, I'm just going to give a little ident for the programme now just so we've got this on tape. You're listening to Sunday Morning with me, Sally Magnuson, here at the Edinburgh International Book Festival with Caroline Criado-Perez. Caroline, you devote many pages to the work that women do in the home. Can you just talk me through the, the consequences of this widespread undervaluing of the free labor provided by women? And this is across the world. Yeah, I mean, that really requires more time than we have. Because, you know, the three things that I kept coming back to in the book are the way we ignore the female body the way we ignore the violence that women face. And the third thing, and perhaps one of the sort of largest data gaps actually, is the way we don't count women's unpaid care work. And it affects everything. It affects women's health. Um, you know, the result of women having to do all this extra work when they're also involved in paid work means that they have all sorts of huge health problems. Um, women who work to, you know, who do overtime work uh, moderate overtime work are at risk of heart disease and cancer and all sorts of mental conditions. And uh, whereas moderate overtime work for men actually has a protective effect. Now, what's the reason for that? Is it that 
women are weak and feeble, or is it that women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work? And so when men do overtime, it means they don't have to be at home being stressed by tiny children running around screaming. Whereas when women do overtime, they've still got to do all that unpaid care work. So women do, um, I think, three times as much unpaid care work as men. I think it's four times as much housework. Men have got a bit better at doing childcare, but they're still not very good at cleaning the toilet. Um, I'm afraid. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's one of the issues. You know, women are also uh, less like less likely to recover from heart bypass surgery than men, for example, because they're more likely to go back into their caregiving roles. So there's the health implications. Um, but then there are implications that are to do with um, financial security and being able to progress in your career. Um, so the issue there is that the government doesn't count women's unpaid care work. No country in the world is currently collecting data in a systematic way on the unpaid work that women do. And that's a huge problem because it means that we don't value the unpaid work that women do. But we should be valuing it because it is actually a huge contributor to GDP. In fact, women's unpaid care work, for example, in Australia, some, a study was done to look at, um, look at it and it was found to be the number one industry. Um, above financial services, which was the number one industry in the formal economy. Why does that matter? It means that when it comes to creating government policy, when it comes to deciding what we're going to spend resources on, we don't spend resources on supporting women and their unpaid care work um, because we don't see it as having value. Um, so, for example, uh, in the cuts that we've been going through um, for the past 10 years... 86% of those have fallen on women. Now, when you look at a figure like that, which is clearly deeply unjust, you either think that the government hates women um, or that the government is not using sexist-aggregated data to come up with their budgets. I prefer to think the latter. This is less depressing. Um, so, but then, you know, there are sort of... I mean, there are so many ways that it can interact. I mean, one um, example that I think is so fascinating, and it's only partly to do with unpaid care work. Um, can I, do, you, do I have time to talk about stoves? Very quickly, okay, and because I'm, I'm going to go out to the audience okay. soon and get their, okay. uh, get their questions for I'm you. I'm going to try and be so. quick about the stoves. Yeah. The stoves, I think, is such a good example of basically everything to do with the book. So um, in lower-income countries, most women still cook on a three-stone stove. And the problem with the three-stone stove is that it gives off incredibly toxic fumes. Um, women are exposed to about 100 cigarettes, the equivalent of about 100 cigarettes a day. It's the number one killer of children under five. Um, it's the number one environmental uh, cause of, of female mortality. Um, so there is a huge need to get clean stoves for these women because it's causing this huge, these huge health problems. In fact, actually, they originally in the 1950s started trying to introduce these stoves um, because they thought that women going and collecting firewood was the cause of deforestation. Then they realized it was large-scale agriculture. Um, <laughs> and, and they thought at that point, well, there's no development uh, issue here, so we'll just stop trying to do the stoves. Anyway, in the 90s, they thought maybe not exposing women to 100 cigarettes a day is a good development initiative. So they started trying to introduce these stoves. Um, but they kept creating stoves that the women weren't adopting. 
and they couldn't figure out why. And they did study after study after study looking into why it was. And the reason they always came up with at the end was these women are really stupid, basically. Um, they need educating on how great these stoves are. Um, when actually, when you looked at what they found, the women weren't stupid at all, obviously. Um, it was incredibly rational that they weren't using these stoves. And one of the issues was that they took much longer <laughs> um, and that they required more attendance than the traditional stove. And in order to know why that's important, you need to know how much time women are already spending cooking. And in these countries, they're spending about seven hours a day already. And when you add in the fact that they have to collect firewood, they have to collect water, they have to watch the kids, they've got to clean the house, they've got all these other duties, they do not have 10 hours to spend sitting in front of a stove doing nothing else. Um, but that was what a lot of the stoves were doing. Other issues were things like, you know, they could only take certain lengths of wood, um, whereas the other ones could take any kind of wood. They required more maintenance. Both of those things were seen as the man's job. The man didn't see the point of doing the job because she still could cook on the three-stone stove. Um, but then eventually, this is a happy story. It's a good story to end on. Eventually, someone came up with this really radical idea. They thought, hmm. Instead of doing what we've always done, which is just create these products and hand them to the women and say, stupid woman, use my stove, they turned it around and they went to the women first and said, what do you want, women? And as a result of that, they created this amazing little device, which is basically um, made of scrap metal that they got from the market, so it's really cheap. Um, and it's an adjustable thing that you put on top of any three-stone stove, and it reduces um, uh, cooking time <laughs> and also reduces fumes to the same level as any of the clean stoves that they had been producing. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to sneak in one last question though, okay. which is that, the, that you issue at the end of the book a, a call for change mm -hmm. and I mean, this is another question that you could, you know, you, you could take a long time to, to, to answer in all the many ways it can Sense be answered. That you're telling but me the, not to take a long time. I am, I am <laughs> saying exactly that. But I want, to, I want to get a sense from you of solutions, uh -huh. of what is, what is needed. I mean, a, clearly a, a whole, wholesale uh, redesign of the way societies across the world are set up would be, it would be a good start. That's not going to happen right now. What, what practically needs to be done now to make an impact on these areas that you've, you've described so eloquently? So the number one thing is collect sex disaggregated data. And one of the great things, actually, is that that is happening in Scotland, which is amazing, um, that it got announced in Scottish Parliament about a month ago that, that they were setting up a working group to do exactly that which is probably the best moment of my life, hearing that. Um, and <laughs> so so that's, that's number one. Um, obviously, you can only do that if you're someone who's collecting data. But that's actually a lot of people. You know, anyone who's designing any product, anyone who is trying to improve HR in their company, you know, there's all sorts of ways that you collect data. The other thing is to remember that data isn't just about numbers um, and statistics. It's also about perspectives, because that is a form of information. And why that matters is that we don't have enough female 
perspectives when we are designing things from policy through to, oh, I don't know, let's say the uh, health tracker app on the Apple in which you can track copper but not your period. You know, you sort of think that if they had had just a single woman in that design team, maybe two, you know, so they didn't feel embarrassed. Um, they, that wouldn't have happened. You know, that goes back to your point about it's not a conspiracy. There's no way Apple did that on purpose to put a middle finger up to women. They just forgot that periods happen. Um, so what I mean by that is that diversity is an integral part of the design process. You know, it's not a nice little tick box to make us feel good. It's actually about being able to create products that actually serve the people you're trying to serve. Um, and then the most simple thing that everyone can do is to stop allowing the male to occupy the gender-neutral spot. Because that is actually what is at the heart of all of this. It is why you still have medical researchers saying, oh, well, we'll start off in men, and if we find anything interesting, we'll add women later. As if there isn't a lot of evidence showing that if you don't have women at the start, you will miss out on all sorts of things that would have been useful for women. But you'll just assume they aren't useful because they weren't useful for men. So how do you do that? Well, for example, every time the newspaper calls the men's football football and the women's football women's football, you call them up and you say, call it men's football. <laughs> you don't have to call them up. You can tweet them. That's fine, too. Um, but... Uh, you know, that, that's such a small, it seems like such a small thing, but actually it is a hugely important and radical thing because it is about changing our perspective because this isn't a conspiracy. This is about a way of thinking. This is something that, and this way of thinking is that we don't see that we're talking about men when we think we're talking gender neutrally. And the way to stop that happening is to stop allowing men to occupy the gender neutral space. Thank you very much. Now, we do have some time for your questions. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of them, and I apologize in advance for the fact that we won't be able to get around to everybody, I'm sure, but let's start with that one right up at the back there. Thank you. Um, hello, good afternoon, and um, I'm very interested in what you have to say. Um, unfortunately, um, 40 years ago, we had Jermaine Greer, Shirley Conran, etc., who'd be sitting there saying similar uh, points to you, although you've gone more scientific with your data research. And it still feels to me like the same story. What do you predict in 40 years' time? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, God, yeah, I mean, look. Has progress been made since progress Germain Greer? Progress has been yeah. made. You know, it was in 1991 that it finally became illegal to rape your wife. Um, I mean, that's progress. <laughs> um, and that wouldn't have happened without women like Germain Greer and all the incredible women from the, the second wave. However, it is depressing going back and looking at the things that they were demanding and how so much of it still hasn't been done. You know, they were demanding universal free childcare. Do we have that? No, we don't. <laughs> um, and, and in some ways, I feel like we've become less radical. They were so radical. Um, and we've become more concerned about 
sort of being nice. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there has been progress, but I think that it's part of what I write about in the book. Women do get forgotten. What they say gets forgotten. Um, Are you hopeful for 40 years' time? Uh, <laughs> I mean, define hopeful. I think it'll... Oh, I don't. I got. I really, who knows now? Who can make predictions right now? I mean, the political climate is so. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Okay. I'm sorry. There's a question uh, right at the front, and then then we'll go behind. Yeah. Thank you. Um, can I just say thank you? You really are a woman after my own heart. But can I just say it's not just men. It's actually the world of white men. Um, <laughs> so. Um, my question is, I've got two boys myself, as much as I'd like to think I'm a feminist, and I've done some work in Africa, I'm originally from Rwanda, and I remember be, having to have 18 men in a pub to explain to them why I was empowering women in a village, but that's not the point. There's an argument, because with the two boys, I think Sally kind of pointed to that, how do we build a world where we don't end up with the other extreme? How, how do we find that balance? Because do you not think the more we, we, we voice this feminism, the more men are going to design a world that protects them because they feel like we are after them? And there's also the issue of uh, AI, artificial intelligence. What is your, your opinion about men designing AI? Uh -huh. um, what an interesting question. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm not too concerned about that, no, because I don't think men are sociopaths. And you would have to be a sociopath to find out, for example, that women are more likely to die following a heart attack or more likely to die in a car crash or, you know, all the really serious issues that I uncover in the book and sort of think, this is terrible. This must, uh, women must not be allowed to change any of this. It must remain exactly the same. Like, I just, I don't, I don't think that that's a serious issue. Um, what about the that, point of the point about AI finding... is, sorry, wait. Sorry, no, the, the, the point about the balance, about, about you know, that you need a certain amount of hyper-correction in order to correct something that's, that's centuries old for historical reasons we understand. Well, but that in the process, necessarily... the process I... of connection, of, yeah. of correction, you, 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 you... I don't think I'm asking for hyper-correction. You know, for example, when I'm saying um, call men's football men's football, you know, that's just equalizing it with women's football and not allowing it to occupy a gender-neutral spot. I mean, that's the central thing that I'm really asking for, is for men not to be allowed to be seen as gender-neutral because they're not. They're men. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think you do have to have a hypercorrection. The problem is that it may feel like a hypercorrection because we are so used to male bias going unsaid mm. so that we don't notice it. Okay, quick um, word on AI. I just want the to The issue with AI is... Um, that it is being majorly designed by, you know, it's hugely male-dominated. That's not a problem because men are evil and want women to die. It's a problem because women, men cannot possibly know what all of women's needs are. Um, and so you end up with algorithms being designed that do have bias built in and are discriminating against women and are discriminating against black people as well, for example, because they're designed by white men, as you said. Um, so the issue there is about recognizing, you know, what I said before about recognizing that diversity isn't just a nice little tick box, it's an integral part of the process. Because with the best will in the world, you know, white middle class men from America cannot possibly know what the whole world needs. Okay, thank you.
Now, at the risk of indulging in some hypercorrection, is there a white middle-class man who would like to <laughs> ask a question up there? <laughs> Hi. Well, I am Spanish. I don't know if I'm fired up. <laughs> so, no, you're fine. The <laughs> question is about your background. Uh -huh. uh, you have two Spanish or Latin American surnames. Uh -huh. I imagine that you, when you mentioned before that you were the only girl speaking in class. Mm -hmm. You were already different to the other girls, mm -hmm. and I, I, I would like to know more about that, about how you are also different, or being from a different background gave you a different way of looking at things. Uh -huh. Well, I think that that is, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm a loudmouth, but um, I suspect it's for a number of reasons. One, I was the only girl in my family. Two, yes, my dad is from Argentina, and so I guess, you know, it was a loud household. Um, but three, also, I grew up having to move country every three years, and that is nothing if not a very good training in just sort of learning to make yourself known. So maybe that's why. Or maybe I was just born really an annoying and opinionated. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you. I think we've got time for a couple of quickies. Oh, anybody over there? Let's take somebody over here and somebody at the front. Thank you. So um, what would your next book be? Um, what sort of diversity? And would there be enough data to be able to write such a book? Um, so, I mean, th this book was um, already very difficult to write <laughs> because there just isn't data. And uh, so many papers that I read ended with, um, we think maybe this could be a thing, but we haven't got the data, so we don't really know. Um, there is a huge gender data gap, but when it comes to sort of further disaggregating the data. There's just not really anything. So for example, when you're looking at data on like representation in films or representation in academia, you'll find stats for men, you'll find stats for women, and you'll find stats for people of color. But women of color are sort of lost within the, both the bigger groups there. So um, that's, by the way, not what I'm intending to write about for my next book. I don't intend to write the next book for a very long time because this book <laughs> nearly killed me. Thank you. There's a question here somewhere? Yeah. Thank you so much, Caroline, for coming along today. Really enjoyed it. Um, I can't help but noticing we have a huge proportion of women in the audience. Not surprising. How do we get the message out to those who really need to hear it beyond buying your book and giving it to everyone? Yeah, that's how. That's how. <laughs> so great idea. <laughs> no, but I, I did actually write this book with men as well as women in mind because, you know, I mean, look, it's got, it's got men on the cover. Very, that attracts men and it's got data in it. <laughs> I just thought that's a really sneaky way of getting men to pick it up. Um, on a more serious note, um, no, I did think that, that this was a really useful way into feminism. You know, I have had quite a few people get in touch with me saying that their partner read this book and for the first time they understand feminism. Because what I was trying to do was take the emotion out of it. You know, this isn't about um, feeling, uh, this isn't about feelings and this isn't about emotions and this isn't about saying these people are bad or these people are sexist. It's none of that. It's about saying these are the systems. And these, this is the way that we all think. And these are the facts. And this is the result. 
Um, and I think explaining it like that is, is certainly the way that I'm trying to get men into feminism. I think I've you know, there's, some, there's more men in here than in a lot of feminist events. Why are you doing this event? Why do you hate this event so much? <laughs> Caroline Carter Perez, it's been an intensely mind-stretching, thought-provoking session. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. I think that applause shows exactly uh, how much the audience have appreciated this this <laughs> afternoon. Uh, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men is published by Chateau and Windus. It's a great read, uh, as I think you could tell. And Caroline will be available to sign books in the uh, signing tent immediately after this event is over. So do rush there now. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.